Great job, kids. Thank you so much. You'd think as a kid's pastor, I would know better than to try and follow that. So good. It worked so hard on that. Now they're going to go bless our Spanish-speaking congregation as well. Let me say a quick prayer for us, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll move forward. Uh, God, thank you so much that you have a great story for us to tell, that we can go tell on the mountain that Jesus, you came into our world, that you were born and that you dwelt among us. So Lord, we do want to join in the chorus this morning. We pray that this time of the sermon, that our time together, we would join in your chorus of the great song of your salvation, the great song of your work, the great song of you coming to live among us. And Lord, I pray for this time that I'm speaking. Lord, I ask that any words that are from me, that are just frivolous words, that they would be like chaff caught in the wind. They blow away and they'd have no impact on any of us. But Lord, for the words that are yours, for the words that you have given me to speak and the words that you are speaking to us, we pray that they would be like good seed that finds good soil. And they would grow inside of us 30, 60, 100 times what was, what was originally, originally put in. Lord, we welcome your presence among us. We pray these things in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So my friend Stuart asked me to meet with him. Stuart was about 10 years younger than me, and he picked one of my favorite locations in Moscow, Idaho. It was a new gastropub that had taken over an ancient space. You know, we know these restaurants, right? The unfinished brick walls, the like really nice plasma TVs next to something that's been crumbling for 60 years. Huge, huge windows that looked into Moscow's picturesque downtown. And if you've never been to Moscow, Idaho, Moscow, Idaho's downtown could be the setting of a Hallmark Christmas movie. It looks so good. All it needs is a gazebo. <laughs> Those who know, know. Unfortunately, this would be a terrible day for a Christmas movie as it was a sweltering June day. Yet, despite the fact it was so warm, Stuart was impeccably dressed as he always is. Stuart is an adherent to the idea that a decline in fashion is a decline in a person's very life, and you can mark the decline of a culture. I guarantee Stuart does not own a pair of jeans. And if he, even, if he ever put on joggers, I don't even know what would happen. The world would be over. He was sitting there in his perfect mix of blue and khaki, perfect combed hair, fit the scene absolutely perfectly. However, unlike many of our conversations, Stuart did not want to meet with me for a style intervention. Stuart wanted to meet with me because he was seeking an older friend in a time of emotional despair. Now, what was interesting about this time is nothing had actually gone wrong in Stuart's life. Nothing had happened. The emotional despair was due to the lack of anything happening. Have we ever been there? I had known Stuart since he was in high school. Stuart was raised by a well-educated family and was always academically excellent. And that academic excellence led to him being accepted to a very prestigious liberal arts university. 
where he proceeded to study classical history. Stewart had racked up a mountain of student loan debts. And when he came out of college, he could not find a position in his field. Distraught and disappointed, he had returned to the Pullman Moscow area to live with his sister and had taken a job at the university that while it paid okay, had nothing that could handle his student loan debts nor the loneliness and disappointment inside of his soul. Stuart, who by the way, you have to know, I love dearly. He is one of my favorite people. In his cheery sarcasm said to me, to be my age, to be of my generation, is to have your earliest memory be watching the Twin Towers fall and then realizing everything would only get worse from that point. Stuart was in a deep place. So I, like any good pastor friend, tried to lift his spirits. What about a different job? What about a different location? What about this option, that option? Join the young adults group at our church. Maybe that'll help you feel better. But Stuart rebuffed them over and over again. And what I realize now looking back on this, and thinking about our Christmas theme, thinking about Jesus as the light of the world, is that both Stuart and I saw a light that day. I was looking at a light on the horizon and I saw a sunrise. Stuart, your circumstances might improve. God is good, God sees you, do you see the sunrise? Yet Stuart looked at the same rays in the sky and he saw a sunset. Perhaps a sunset on his faith, perhaps even a sunset on Western civilizations, but definitely a sunset on the dreams he had had, the story he had been told that if you work hard, that if you achieve, that if you do well, things are going to work out for you. And all that left him in a pl- was in a place of dusk, waiting for the night to come. So the question I want us to wrestle with this morning during this sermon is what kind of light are we looking at on the horizon? Do we see a sunrise? Do we see a sunrise of God's work in the world, of Jesus's incarnation, of Jesus's return? Or like Stuart, have we been caught in a cycle of seeing a sunset? Hopes are dashed. Things that we believed would work have not worked out for us. The news is awful. What are we living in, a sunrise or a sunset? So I wanna talk about somebody who I believe saw a sunrise despite having every reason to believe in a sunset. I wanna talk about Mary, the mother of Jesus. So let's talk a little bit about Mary and her circumstances. Mary was a woman in a time of high patriarchy thus limiting her power and agency to change anything in her world. Mary was poor. Our passage today is going to be from Luke's, the first chapter of Luke's gospel. But in the second chapter, we see Mary who goes to make an offering at the temple and her and her and Jonathan have to give the least of the offering, the poorest of the poor offering. She is young early teenager at the oldest. She is from Nazareth, 
Nazareth would be famously disparaged in John's gospel by the apostle Nathaniel as a place that nothing good could come from. In reality, we also know that it was about a 1,400 to 2,000 person backwater agricultural town that, hold, that held no respect in the world. And on top of that, she was Jewish. The Jewish people, despite their belief and their claim of being God's chosen people, God's favored among the nations, were living under the boot of the Roman Empire, had suffered generations of exile and return, and were at the tail end of 400 years of prophetic silence. They had not heard from God in 400 years. Their claims of being God's chosen, their claims of God seeing them and loving them looked laughable to everyone during their stage. If anybody had an excuse to look at the world and see a sun set on their lives, on their people, on their circumstances, Mary had every reason in the world to do so. Yet, in this bleakly lit moment, Mary is visited by an angel. And in contrast to the circumstances we just listed, she is called highly favored, a term used sparingly in the Old Testament. She is told she's going to bear a son who is most high, who will sit on the throne of David and whose reign will never end. These are Messiah terms. And how does Mary respond to the angel? She says, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. This is a woman of a son rise. So that brings us to the first part of our text this morning, when Mary, full of this message, rushes to visit her cousin Elizabeth. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste to the hill country, to a town in Judah. She entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment that was spoken to her from the Lord. Elizabeth is an older cousin of Mary's who is also experiencing a divine birth. She, unlike Mary, who is seemingly too young, she is too old. She was told that she was past her birthing stage, yet she miraculously has inside of her a child. And Mary rushes to her cousin. And as Mary arrives, this in utero John the Baptist leaps for joy. And Elizabeth, again, after 400 years of God's silence, Elizabeth is filled with the same Holy Spirit that had filled Mary. Despite the fact the world looks dim, despite the fact that it looks like the sun is setting on the Jewish people, here, hidden in the hill country, among two women, one too young, one too old, the Spirit of God is on the move again. In the most unlikely of places, the Spirit of God is on the move again. And in that moment, Mary leaps 
into a song. And it's a song that will be our text this morning. And I love the tradition of standing for the reading of God's word. Stand with me as we read Mary's song. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him. From generation to generation, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Word of the Lord. You may be seated. To analyze Mary's song, otherwise known as the Magnificat, line by line, would be a survey of both the Testaments that make up our Bible, which is actually the reason for its endurance. It is a product of Mary, the actual person Mary. It is a product of her time. She sees herself in the story as the humble, as the poor, as the cast aside, as the downtrodden. We have to be careful with the incarnation to never treat Mary as anything less than an actual person. The theologian Lucy Pepiat reminds us that Mary was called to be the mother of Jesus, to house Jesus, to feed Jesus, to raise Jesus. Mary has to be a person in our stories. If we are not careful, she will become a spiritual U-Haul container bringing the incarnation into the world and having no significance unto herself. Yet, she is also a person of two heartbeats. Her own heartbeat and the heartbeat of the divine growing inside of her in this moment. She sings a song of her time and a song of her circumstances, and she sings a song that reminds us as readers, that reminds her, that reminds the world of just who God is and what God is doing in this time and doing in this place. And she begins with a line that I have to admit has intrigued me, has haunted me, and has frustrated me for the better part of the past three weeks. My soul magnifies the Lord. The poetry is wonderful. The image is evocative and it gets inside of you, and you love it, and you say amen to it. But if you're like me, you begin to ask pretty soon, yeah, but what does that actually mean? You ever have that when you're reading scripture? You come across something, and it leaps off the page at you like it's a 3D movie. I heard Avatar's back, so 3D's a thing again. Yet, you can't put into words what it means. But my friends, I am blessed. I am blessed among pastors. Because I occupy an office with people who are giants of the scripture and love the word of God. And I can bounce ideas and ask questions off of them. And not only do I occupy an office with these people, I share a cubicle space with a couple of them. So as I was reading this line a couple weeks ago, I turned to Luke Emery, our middle school pastor. 
In my desperation, if he helps to interpret this passage, I turn to him and I say, Luke, what do you think it means when Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord? He says, it's simple. It's this. For those of you on the podcast, my hands are out like plates. I have a stoic look on my face and my eyes are looking to the horizon, yet they are closed. I go, okay, Luke, seriously, but what does it mean? He goes, no, you know what it means. Like you can feel it. You don't need to know the definition. It's this. And I think he was saying something really deep to me, but I was frustrated. So I went and found Nick. Nick, Nick's my guy. Nick's a teacher of scripture. We have seen him up here, right? So I go to Nick. Nick, what does it mean when Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord? And do you know what this fool does to me? (laughs) I swear 10 minutes had not passed. They did not have time to talk about this. And while, again, I think there is something in that image that I should lean into, and I trust my friends for their wisdom, I did have to go seek out some other counsel. (laughs) So I went to the John John Ortberg book, Soul Keeping, which was a favorite of mine a couple of years ago. And this is what John Ortberg says of our souls. What is running your life at any given moment is your soul, not external circumstances not your thoughts, not your intentions, not even your feelings, but your soul. The soul is the aspect of your whole being that correlates, integrates, and enlivens everything going on in the various dimensions of the self. The soul is the life center of human beings. The soul is the deepest part of us. I think of it as like the rudder that moves the ship. The soul integrates our mind and our body, our ideas, our dreams, and pushes them in the direction that we need to go. The soul animates and moves and drives us. Mary's life, the deepest part of herself, her rudder is to glorify the Lord. It's what she lives for. It's what she breathes for. It's how she interacts with the world around her. She glorifies, she magnifies, she amplifies the Lord. And I felt, a little, I felt a little thing I like to call conviction as I thought about this. So there's a couple of images I want to put up on the screen. Here is me at some Seattle Seahawks football games, hanging out with two of my favorite beings in the world, the hawk that flies around the stadium, and my beloved wife, Donut. Now, if you knew me at kind of the peak of the Seahawks run, 2012, 2014, you would know that I was a Seahawks fan. You did not have to dig deep to find out what I was excited about. If it was Friday, I was wearing blue, baby. I talked about the Seahawks. I watched the Seahawks. I made decisions about my time in accordance to the Seahawks. Was it a 9 a.m. service or an 11 a.m. service? Depends on when kickoff is. I spent my money on the Seahawks. My podcasting and thought life became full of Seahawks commentary 
It wasn't just enough to watch the game. I had to hear about the game from the people who watched the game, who knew more about the game, so I could know more about the game. My community were friends that wanted to endlessly chew on these things with me. But that didn't stop there. No, no, no. I didn't like this Pete Carroll guy at USC, but I loved him in Seattle. So I, bought, I got his book and I studied his leadership philosophies. And I was an area director with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. So I led meetings around the philosophies of Pete Carroll because clearly he was a great leader I needed to learn from. It was time for Tell the Truth Mondays. It was time for relentless positivity. I tried to figure out how to have always compete and win forever, be Christian values. I don't think I did a very good job of it. Which really gets to the crux of the matter. As I look back on that period of my life and I think about magnifying, I think about amplifying, my soul was amplifying and magnifying the Seahawks. Anyone around me could have told you that was the case. So what are we amplifying in our lives? What are we magnifying in our lives? I think this question is really important because Mary could say with confidence, my soul magnifies the Lord. What does it look like to have that confidence to sing that song? And honestly, if you were asking that question this morning, what your soul magnifies, I would like to invite you to do something. Don't look at your own journal to answer that question. Don't answer that question for yourself. Ask your best friend. Ask your coworker. Ask your spouse. Ask your kids. Are you magnifying yourself? Are you magnifying your fandoms and obsessions? Are you magnifying your career? Parents, this is a weird one to say as the kids pastor. Are you magnifying your family more than you're magnifying the Lord? What orients and drives you? We must move forward. So here is Mary in this song, both blessed in the recipient of good things, favored by God and profoundly seen. Yet because her soul magnifies the Lord, she is aware who the actor is in God's redemptive work, and she knows it is not her. Hence the Magnificat moves from these early stanzas about Mary, her heart, her character, her life, to a powerful reflection of God's works in the past that point to God's continuing works in the present and the future to come. She sings of a God who scatters the proud with his arm. In the Old Testament, it is the arm of God that delivers the Jewish people from Egypt. It is the arm of God that carries them out of exile. Every time the Jewish people find themselves in a situation where the odds are against them, it is stacked and they do not have what it takes. It is the arm of God that delivers them. She sees God's mighty arm throughout history and she proclaims that arm as being at work right now, even in the hidden places. She sings of a God who, sings the, who sees the humble, remembers the hungry, and gives mercy to those who fear him. Not a God who seeks out the most gifted orators or the strongest or the most resourced, but a God of the lowly and the humble. This is the God of the impossible. She sings of a God 
of the impossible, who can do work and story after story. She makes this her song because it is the song of her experience, two unlikely women full of the Holy Spirit, seeing God's redemptive work growing inside them and feeding off of their very bodies. She knows the God of the mighty arm doing a new work. And she ends with a God who remembers Abraham, who remembers his covenants, who remembers his promises. How can you see a sunset when you believe in a God who remembers his promises? How can you believe those rays speak to the end when you believe in a God who sees and knows and is faithful to everything he has ever said will be true and good? So then why? If Mary can see the sunrise so clearly, if she can sing of this sunrise so completely, why do so many of us feel like the sun is setting? Setting on the church of God, setting on our hopes, setting on our longings. I believe that most of us desperately want to welcome the light with Mary. But even as we look back on God's faithfulness, we struggle with the looking forward. And maybe like Stuart, it's because of our experiences. Friends, I'm not gonna be the first pastor to stand up and say the last three years have felt like a song of despair. We've watched an unnamed disease kill a million Americans and six million people around the globe. We watched systems and structures that felt like they were sure and strong and forever grind to a halt. Some have come back, some have not. We went through a period and are going through a period of a racial reckoning that gripped our nation and has forced us to ask questions about the stories we believe about who we are. And on top of all that, I remember this sweltering June day that I met with Stuart I didn't tell you his first greeting to me. As I walked in sweating on a 100-degree day, two months too early for such weather, Stuart cheerfully smiled at me and said, welcome to the coldest summer of the rest of your life. Many of us, especially our young people, live with a deep sense of dread and a sense that nothing is ever going to improve. And in that place, in that place where we've learned a song of despair, we've learned a song of dusk, how do we sing of a sunrise with Mary? I'm hesitant to give answers to that question because I think it's a supernatural answer at its core. I think like Mary and like Elizabeth, we sing of the sunrise because God does a work inside of us, changes us, puts a new song in our hearts and a new song on our lips. But I do want to give a couple of tips. That's what they pay me to do, right? Let's start by shifting our focus. How great was it when the kids came up here and sang for us? And the song they sang, Go Tell It on the Mountain, it's a song that was written at the tail end of the Civil War into Reconstruction, but its roots go back even further. Early verses were probably sung on plantations as a song of defiant hope, in the midst of a dark period of abuse. 
And in that moment, the song was not a song of despair or of a sunset, though it could have been. It's a song of a sunrise, of a belief in a God who does remember his promises, who does remember his people, who shows up in the most unlikely of spaces. And the church continues to grow and thrive in our day in the places you would not expect it to do so. In the past hundred years, the power and the population of the church has moved from the Western world into the global South, into nations that have known corruption and pain that are still cut off from systems of power to this day, though it is changing, praise God. Christianity thrives in places not necessarily of material blessing, but in places of real and actual struggle. May we be discipled by those who have come before us and those right now whose faith is growing and thriving, not in peace and comfort, not in in the systems and the structures working as they are supposed to, but in a God who has imparted a hope and a song that sings of God's mighty hand coming into fruition in this world. Which brings me to my second point. I believe we have to lift our eyes past our own horizon. I have been part of a Christian mission generation that has said people don't wanna hear about the second coming of Jesus that much. They wanna know what God can do in the here and the now. And I believe in a God that can do a lot in the here and the now, but I also believe in a God who is returning who is coming in power and in glory and in love and in justice and in mercy to this earth and will sing this song with us forever. We cannot have the hope to sing this song with Mary if we cannot lift our eyes beyond the here and the now. We will not sing with Mary if we only can see what is happening right now. We have to believe in a God who is coming. We have to believe in a God that sunrise means He is coming over the hills to set this world right, to do what he has said, to fulfill his promises, to always remember his covenant unto us. That is what we sing about at Christmas. Yes. Mary's longing is our longing. She sees the story of what God is doing and we can sing along with her. She can teach us to sing. The Spirit can teach us to sing. This church can teach us to sing. We can learn from God how to sing this song. May this be our Christmas song. So just my last moment here. I want to talk to those of you today who are struggling with hope, who hear these words and are like, yes, amen, I want that, but I just don't know if I can believe it. I just don't know. My hopes have been dashed too much, and I don't want to manufacture my own joy. I don't want to be fake. I don't want to come and say, yes, marry, and go home and be like, yeah, sunset. And what I have to say to you today is what I would have said to my friend Stuart. I would have said, I know it's hard. I know that it didn't work out the way you wanted it to. I know you did everything you thought you were supposed to do, and it didn't lead you where you thought it was supposed to go. May your soul still magnify the Lord. I know it's hard to do it, but can you still magnify the Lord with your soul? Can you orient your soul around magnifying God and God's story? As you lift God up, God lifts you up. It does happen, I promise you. 
God is coming for you. God loves you. God will seek you. God's circumstances are there for you. I wasted so much breath trying to solve Stuart's problems when only God, only God can encounter that moment. Only God can incarnate in that moment. Only God can form inside someone at that moment. So if you are lacking in hope this morning, if you do only see a sunset on the horizon, I want to pray for you, and I want to pray for you Mary's song. So you don't have to do anything dramatic, just in your seat. If you feel like, man, I just need the song to be my song, and I don't know if it is right now, just put your hands out to receive. And I'm going to speak this song over you. And my prayer as I do so is that it will be a deposit in your soul that will get inside of you and grow into a song that you can join the chorus of. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name and his mercy is for those who fear him. From generation to generation, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. He has exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Amen. Thank you, God. And the rest of us can join in as well. Today, we are going to take the Lord's Supper. And I cannot think, I cannot dream or imagine a better way to sing this song with Mary than to take the Lord's Supper this morning. For the last 20 years, every time I took the Lord's Supper at my old church, this was read over me. Every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim, you amplify, you magnify the saving death of the risen Lord until he comes again. Friends, as we take the bread and the wine this morning, the bread and the juice this morning, we amplify, we proclaim to our spirits, we proclaim to our souls, we proclaim to the world, and we proclaim to each other that Jesus has come that Jesus has died, that Jesus has rose again, and that he is coming again for us. So I invite you to come to the table, those who are physically able to do so. For those who are not, raise your hand. We'll make sure you get the elements. But come, take the elements, bring them back to your seat, and together we will proclaim, we will proclaim this song to our church and to ourselves.
Amen.